Well, a few weeks ago, we uh, launched a series entitled Dollars and Cents, A Biblical Approach to Finances. And the reason we gave for doing this series is that it's very important that the church, we believe, address the issue of finances because there's more at stake than money. Our families are at stake. Our peace of mind is at stake. Our integrity is at stake. The kingdom of God and the work that we're called to do is at stake. And so over the course of this series, we have been addressing several themes that relate to money that are found in Scripture that will help us, I believe, as followers of Jesus, honor Him with not only our attitudes but our actions concerning money. And so our theme has been this. It is only when our financial priorities align with kingdom priorities will we handle our finances in a way that declares that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. That's a loaded statement, but I believe that to the core. So the first week we talked about lordship. The second week we talked about generosity. Last week, Pastor Mark talked about the good life versus the God life. And today I'm talking to you about honesty. And so uh, I want to share this media clip with you this morning as we get going. Hey, Jack, did, did you eat a cupcake? No. You didn't eat a cupcake? No, I wasn't at home. You sure you didn't eat a cupcake? No. Hmm. I thought you maybe had a cupcake. No. No? No. Definitely not? No. Not like in the last couple minutes? No. No cupcake for Jack? No. Oh, okay. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure Jack had a cupcake. I'm pretty sure Jack's lying about the cupcake. Now, while we laugh at Jack and his obvious lie, truth is, we don't like being lied to. We don't like liars. We don't like dishonesty. We just don't. Especially if we've ever been impacted or hurt by another person's lies. Because we've learned that lies spread quickly and they inflict damage and pain along the way. I love, this is one of my favorite quotes from Winston Churchill. He says, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. We have observed during this series that giving is not primarily about money. God doesn't need our money. You're thinking, did you really just say that? I did. God doesn't need your money. We need to experience the life-changing power that comes with giving and trust and faith and lordship more than God needs our money. And so when there's a problem with finances and giving, it's a sign really that there's a greater problem that's existing below the surface. It might be greed. It might be mistrust. It might be fear or selfishness or mismanagement. And so to address the issue of honesty and finances today, we're going to consider what some might call an unusual text. And it is an unusual text, one that we hope never repeats itself in the history of the world. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And it's not about what happens when you lie about your offering. That's not what it's about. It's about what happens when we place our emphasis on what other people see. 
It's about what happens when other people's perception of us becomes more important than who we really are. It's about what happens when we hold back from total surrender to God while at the same time trying to give the impression that we're actually surrendering everything. And so our purpose today is to explore this story beyond the surface to its roots and its influence and see how we can apply the truths in this story to our lives so that we can live honestly before God. And so let's read this scripture together this morning. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, was it the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped him up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in and not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias, Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What a wonderful, happily ever after, seeker-sensitive, feel-good passage that we have the opportunity to unpack this morning. I want to start by talking about the environment. No, not from David Suzuki's perspective, but the environment of this scripture. The chapters leading up to chapter 5 give us a wonderful indication as to what's happening in the New Testament church to this point. They have experienced some amazing things. They've seen the ascension of Jesus. That moment where Jesus says, okay, it's time for me to go. And he actually is lifted up into the clouds. And as he is disappearing from sight, the messengers of God come down and announce to them, why are you gazing? This same Jesus that you see leaving is going to come back. And so there's this excitement. There's this stretching of emotions, but they, they get to see all of this happening. They get to see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them prior to leaving, he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to wait for the empowering of the Spirit. I want you to be anointed to do my ministry with the same Spirit that anointed me. And he says, you're going to have power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're going to be able to fulfill the mission through the power and anointing of the Spirit, just like I did. And so they obediently did what he said. And we read of the 120 who are waiting in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, and they are filled with the Spirit. We experience dynamic growth. Bystanders observing, hearing what's happening, think they're all 
drunk and weird things are happening. You don't have to be around Pentecostal context very long before you start wondering if we're weird. We come with a really good dose of weirdness. We just do. And they're wondering, are they drunk? What's, what's going on? And in that environment, Peter stood and he began to preach the story of Jesus. And 3,000 people are added to the church in that one day. And then as we read the following verses and chapters, it says, daily people are being added in becoming followers of Jesus. The church is growing in leaps and bounds. There's miracles. They're empowered by the Spirit. The apostles followed the ministry pattern of Jesus. He was powerful in both word, preaching, but also in deeds, miracles, healing, deliverance. And all of a sudden, as they are empowered by the Spirit, this becomes a part of their daily ministry too. They have strong faith. They have new boldness because the Holy Spirit's empowering them and they're just carrying this out and they're seeing the responses. What Jesus said is happening. And they have authentic community. We know that these are primarily Jewish people accepting Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. The spiritual leaders are not pleased. We talked about that a while back. Persecution begins. People lose their jobs, their families. Before long, these new Christians become destitute. There's no money. There's no food. There's no means to earn any money. But then an incredible miracle takes place. Those who've accepted Jesus begin to respond as Jesus would. No one felt that what they owned belonged exclusively to them. It belonged to all of them. And it says there were no needy among them because from time to time, people sold their houses, their land. And they would bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet to share with those in need. Could there be a more exciting time in the history of the church? I mean, the ascension of Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit, growth that's just they can hardly keep up with, miracles happening everywhere, and this powerful, authentic community that's, that's holding it all together. Could there be a more spiritual environment than we find right here in this moment in the New Testament church in the book of Acts? Could we see a more wonderful moment? And yet in the midst of this, there are two people specifically mentioned that are a part of this great revival, Ananias and Sapphira. Somewhere along the way, they responded to the message. Somewhere along the way, they were most likely filled with the Spirit like the rest of them were. Somewhere along the way, they witnessed these incredible miracles of God. They were exposed to the apostles' teaching. Like the others, they would have experienced the brunt of criticism. They would have experienced persecution for their faith. They were participants in the faith. They were participants in the church. They were a part of God's unfolding mission. They were followers of Jesus. It's almost inconceivable to think that one could be a part of something, an environment that is so special, so spiritual, yet sin. And what we need to see here is that sin can happen in the most spiritual of environments. That no place and no person is immune. If sin could rear its head in the New Testament church in Acts, it can rear its head anywhere. 
the environment. Motivation. Luke lays out a progression of generosity and care that he sees happening in the early church that leads up to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. He makes a general reference, or what we would call as we study Scripture, a summary statement. A statement that sort of ends a section that kind of generally speaks about what's happening. And so, in in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, we we find this summary statement, and it tells about the generosity of those caring for the poor and one another in this great community. Then he moves to what we would call a specific reference. I've said generally that this is happening. Now I'm going to give you a specific example. And so two verses later in verse 36, he says, so there was this man named Joseph who was a Levite from Cyprus. And the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And so he shows up frequently as you read the book of Acts He's helping people, he's encouraging people, he's supporting people, he's, he's preaching the gospel, he's on these missionary endeavors. And we're told that by Luke, that this specific example, that he owned the field. Barnabas owned a field and he sold it and he brought the money from the field and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And so Luke is giving us what we would call a positive example of authentic community and care that's taking place. He makes this summary statement this general reference that this is happening. And he says, let me give you an example of how this is positively happening. But then sadly, we have our main reference today, which is a negative example. He not only gives us a positive example, he gives us a negative one. He provides us and switches focus from Barnabas then right to Ananias and Sapphira. They observed what was happening They saw the great generosity of all these people of what was taking place. They know about Barnabas. They know what Barnabas did. And so they're they're observing this and they see the value and the praise that was attributed when these people gave sacrificially. And they wanted this acclaim. They wanted the praise. So we're told that they too sold a piece of property. But then they met together and they decided amongst themselves that they would keep part of the proceeds for themselves. They came up with a plan that was a win-win. You know what? The proceeds of the sale that we will keep for ourselves, that will help us. And then we'll give the other to the church and that will help them. And people will see that, that what we did. And so they brought the money and they laid it at the disciples' feet. And they pretended, though, to give the full amount. They lied. Now, it's interesting that the offerings were laid at the apostles' feet. Maybe we should start doing that instead of using offering plates. I don't know. Why was it done this way? Why would they lay it at the apostles' feet? Well, because feet in this culture were considered, were not considered with high esteem. You got to understand, everyone's wearing sandals. They got calluses and bumps and dirt and filth and dust on their feet. I mean, it was a disgusting time to live. You talk about someone coming into your home and saying, just keep your shoes on. I mean, it's a mess. And so, when you came into a wealthy home, there actually would be a servant there that would, as a sign of hospitality, that would wash your feet before you entered. It was probably as much for the wealthy home as it was for you. They didn't want you tracking the mud. In the other homes, it was usually the youngest child right? Because they were viewed as the least in the household, and so the young kid got the job of washing, you know, all these Uncle Joe's 
dirty, filthy, bumpy feet. And so it was done reluctantly. Nobody wanted to do this. And that's why we have so many examples in Scripture of Jesus at a meal and a, a woman who is obviously sinful comes in and, and, and lets down her hair and, and washes his dirty feet with her alabaster perfume and her tears. And, 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 and they're appalled. The religious leaders are appalled because she's sinful, but she's washing his feet with her hair. And, and it's just disgusting that she would do it. That's why we read in the upper room as they've all gathered as disciples to celebrate the Passover. Jesus notices, you all came in, you're all a part of me, but none of you would lower yourself to wash the feet. So guess what? I'm going to do it for you. And I'm going to model to you what real leadership and humiliation looks like. And so to kneel at one's feet was considered ultimate humiliation, ultimate surrender, ultimate reverence. That's why worship so often in Scripture is talking about laying at God's feet. It's humility, it's reverence. We see in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is preaching to the Gentile Cornelius, where he falls at Peter's feet and Peter says, what are you doing, stupid Gentile? Get up, I'm only a man. You can't fall at my feet. When people brought their gifts to God, they laid them at the apostles' feet. Whether it was a big offering or a small offering, they laid it at the apostles' feet because laying their gifts at the apostles' feet was like directly laying them at God's feet. Ananias and Sapphira were dishonest and their actions were premeditated and deliberate. God didn't ask them to sell the field. God didn't tell them how much of the field that they were to bring. God didn't ask for any of this. They're motivated by recognition. They're motivated by acclaim. And they want it to be viewed in the eyes of the others in this young church as being spiritual people, when in reality, they were not spiritual at all. And then we see their consequences. See, there were some things that Ananias and Sapphira didn't fully grasp. They didn't grasp immunity. Being immersed in a spiritual environment doesn't make one immune to sin. Peter clearly stated to Ananias when he brought the offering, he says, Ananias, Satan has filled your heart. They had personally experienced the life-changing power of God. They had personally experienced the power of the Spirit. They had personally witnessed the working of miracles. And somewhere along the way, it became easier to focus on looking spiritual than on being spiritual. Somewhere along the way, the sin of pride had been allowed to flourish in their lives. They didn't understand that they were not immune to sin. Secondly, they didn't understand honesty. They didn't understand that when you're dishonest before others, you are dishonest before God. When you are dishonest before others, you are dishonest before God. And so when they laid their gift at the apostles' feet, they thought they were dealing with a person. I'm just going to, you know, this is Peter. We all know that he can have some, you know, moments where his brain empties. We've seen it, right? And so it's just Peter. Peter would have no way of knowing any better. Peter would be gullible. He'd appreciate the gift. 
What they weren't counting on was the Holy Spirit dynamic. That God, by His Spirit, gave wisdom and insight to those He put in leadership. The very act of laying gifts at the apostles' feet was worship before a holy God. It was not Peter. It wasn't the apostles. apostles who, it wasn't the fellow believers that they were withholding from. It wasn't these people that they were lying to. They were withholding and lying to the Holy Spirit, to God. They didn't understand that. And they didn't understand death. The end result of dishonesty and sin is always death. Ananias and Sapphira came to Peter separately. And when Ananias came, he lied to Peter and he lied before God. Instantly, he struck down. He died. Peter didn't kill him. Peter didn't put a curse on him. This is not Harry Potter or, or Lord of the Rings. His death was the consequence of his sin. He's lying before God. And the young men come and take him out and bury him. And his wife showed up. And she's unaware of what happened to her husband. And so she gives the same story because they had worked it out before they got there. And again, she lied to Peter and she lied to God. And she too lost her life. Now, this seems a little drastic over a few dollars, doesn't it? I mean, really? Like, it's just a lie. Why is God acting so drastically? It's just a lie. Well, because God warns throughout His Word from beginning to end that sin always results in death. God tells us that from the beginning. When He created Adam and Eve and He laid out the groundwork, He just said, listen, stay away from there. The rest you can have because if you associate with that, you will die. And so what do they do? They send. And now today, death is a part of creation. Death and sickness and evil and, and sinfulness. Why? Because they chose to do what God asked them not to do, and death came in. In Joshua 7, the armies are victorious, and God says, don't touch any of the spoil, just leave it. But Achan decides he can sneak a little bit home, takes it home, buries it under the floor of his tent, because no one's ever going to know, right? No one's ever going to know. I buried it. Well, they know because they're losing the battle. Innocent men are dying on the and all of a sudden, it's like, God, what's going on? And God says, there's sin in the camp. And they start to search it out, and they finally find that hidden in the floor of Achan's tent is a disobedience of taking something that God said, you can't have that. And not only did, did his sin result in the loss of life of innocent men on the front lines of battle, but it resulted in his own death and the death of his family. And that's why I always say, no one sins alone. Our sins always affect other people. Ananias and Sapphira, what a unique situation. The beginning of a significant time in the history of God's kingdom. This was the launch of the church. God is declaring the importance of true spirituality in His church. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, and the church is being built. And it's important that the church be built with integrity and character and spirituality. These were young, vulnerable believers. Sin left without being confronted would have destroyed this young church, would have destroyed the movement, 
And so through this event, God helped them see the importance. Does it seem drastic? Maybe. But I believe this is what was needed to help the church see how important it is to live life honestly before God and to not allow sin to shape the DNA and the foundation of the church. So having said all of that, there are three applications that I want to make today as we apply this message to our lives. The first is spirituality. Folks, we are a blessed people. We've experienced amazing things in our lives. We know what it's like to experience firsthand the grace and forgiveness of God. We were sinners. We needed, we failed. We needed forgiveness and grace. And guess what? We got it. We know firsthand how Jesus can change a life and restore hope and give us a future where there's no future. We've experienced the moving of the Holy Spirit in our personal lives and in our families and in our church. We've heard of and seen miracles and healing and deliverance and answers to prayer. We know what it's like to be a part of a community that cares about us, that supports us, that encourages us, that prays for us. We know what it's like to gather for a service like we did today and experience the very presence of God in our midst. We've proven time and time again that God is faithful. He can be trusted. He's always with us. We get to be partners in His mission to use our lives to see those who are lost come to Jesus. We're a part of something special. We're a part of something exciting and powerful and supernatural. Yet in the midst of all of this, we see failure and sin, wandering, dissatisfaction, people who are not what they appear to be. How is this possible? Because being in a spiritual environment does not make a person spiritual. Any more than spending time in your garage will make you a car. It doesn't. It's not what's happening around us that makes us spiritual. It's what's happening inside of us and through us. We can't allow what's happening around us to become a substitute for our own personal experience with God. I love worship, but worship can be a replacement for our own personal intimacy with God. Sometimes worshiping is easier than praying. I love preaching. I love studying the Word of God. But sometimes those things become replacements of our own personal time in the Word of God. I love seeing the church involved and active, but sometimes church involvement can be a, a, a substitute for living missionally about personally impacting lives out there because I'm justifying myself by being busy in here. These are all important things and they should strengthen our personal experience, but they should never substitute a genuine personal experience with God that shapes our spirituality. When our focus is on our surroundings and not our personal spirituality, we're vulnerable to fail. Secondly, surrender. What is the motivator of your spiritual life? Are you motivated by the character of Jesus and long more than anything in the whole world to become like Him? 
Are you motivated by a passion for lost people and would do anything to see them come to Jesus? Are you motivated by a promise of joy and satisfaction and peace that comes from God when we surrender to Him? Do you really believe that you're only really truly find life when you, when you lay your life at His feet? Do you really believe that you only have when you give it all away? Do you really believe that to be the greatest, you have to become the least? Do you really believe it? Or are you holding something back today? Perhaps you're here and you want to surrender. You want to surrender more than anything, but you just can't seem to do it. You just can't. You want to give your whole life to Jesus, but, but you find yourself holding parts of it back. You're not ready to really lay it all down yet. Folks, we need to remember that when we give our lives, when we give our finances, we are laying them at the feet of Jesus as an act of worship. You may have noticed and we've highlighted it. We do offering different around here. We now start from the back and come to the front instead of the front and going to the back where we, you know, undercover sneak it out of the building. We now bring it to the front and we pause to pray. Why? Because we believe that giving is an act of worship that can't just be, you know, going on here. It has to be elevated. Because when those ushers stand here, we are symbolically laying our sacrificial giving at the feet of Jesus. That's what we're doing. And when we lay it down, and some of us need to learn this, when we lay it down, when that plate goes by and you let it go physically, you have relinquished ownership of it. And maybe some of you need to understand that. And then those whom God has put in positions to be the stewards, to be held accountable, to administer it in a way that honors Him and fulfills His plan, they then take responsibility for it. Now, I want to just share with you just very briefly this morning some abuses that need to be avoided. Things that I've seen in 30 years of ministry. A number of years ago, I was teaching at the campus in Toronto. I was teaching a church administration course. It was all the nuts and bolts of administrating and leading a church. Everything from constitutions to how to do a funeral, a wedding, to finances, to budgets, to you name it. I had a student in my class. It was a second year class. He was a married student with kids. And he just loved the course, and he was a sponge. He just would ask me after class all kinds of questions. And then a church called him. It was a small church that had a hard time getting a pastor. And they called him and asked him if he would consider leaving his studies to come pastor their church. And so he did. He left his studies, and he went off to pastor this little church with his wife and kids. And he would be calling me constantly. And I'm okay with that. Weirdly, I am, because I believe God put me on this earth to mentor other people. So if you need to call me to get help, I'm always here for you. And so he would call me a lot. And one day he called me and said, you know all the stuff you taught me in the class? Hey, <laughs> yeah, he goes, yeah, none of that's happening here. They want to do things opposite to what you taught opposite to what I feel is right, opposite to what I believe God by His Word wants to do. They're trying to push me, and I am not giving in because to do that is to compromise integrity and biblical values, and I'm not willing to do it. Now we understand why they had a hard time getting a pastor. I said, what are you going to do? He said, 
I'm just going to keep being faithful to God regardless what comes. He had no idea what could come. The treasurer of the church was the one leading the charge. They decided they needed to get rid of him. But he wouldn't leave. So they decided they would starve him out. The treasurer gave at least 50% of the offering in that church. And he also knew who all the other tithers were. And he called them all individually and said, I want you to stop giving your tithe until he breaks and leaves. And then we'll bring it. We're going to starve him out. You know where I would have liked to have been that day? I would have liked to have been delivering the right hand of fellowship right down his throat. That may sound unspiritual, but that's where I would have liked to have been. He pushed that young man out of that church because they came back and said, Pastor, there's no offerings. We can't pay your salary. And then he left. And then his marriage fell apart. And his life went to pieces. Last week, I had the privilege of watching him walk across the stage and finish his studies, trying to pick up the pieces. You think unspiritual things don't happen in spiritual environments? Folks, that's nothing but the pit of hell. That's not spirituality. And someday they're going to answer before God. But I've seen less intense. I've, I've seen the I pay your salary mentality. It's like that picture of the policeman who pulls you over and he's going to give you a ticket for running the red light and you try everything and then when nothing works, you look at him and say, I pay your salary. Thinking that's going to help you. Don't go there. Because I pay my taxes. So therefore, I should be able to get to do what I want to do. Do you know how many times I have been reminded in 30 years that it's us who pay our tithes that pay your salary? It's us who pay the tithes who should get what we want in here. Why should young people get what they want when they're not carrying the tithe? Because when you laid it at the feet of Jesus, it ceased being yours. It's not yours. It's His. And you don't pay my salary. God pays my salary. And we're in negotiations to get it up a little bit, God and I. It's not yours. It's not yours. You may reach a point where you don't like me or the future of the church, and you just say, I'm going to take my toys and go home. Fine. I'm going to hold back my tithe because I don't like what you want to do. You're not hurting me. You're not hurting us. You're hurting you. You're just hurting you. You're the one that's going to pay that price because what you're saying is, God, I'm not willing to give you what is rightfully yours because I want to be able to control how it's used. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I'm not saying, you know, give it to the leadership team and let them abuse it without accountability. We have accountability systems. That's not the point. The point is when you lay it at the feet of Jesus, it's no longer yours. And you don't get to use it to manipulate to get what you want. Surrender. When we give it, we let it go. And it's now His. Death. Let's end with death. 
outcome. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, death always brings, sin always brings death in some form or another. It may not be physical death as the consequence for our lack of giving, our lack of spirituality, our lack of surrender. But there are other deaths that we can experience. When we are sinning in our lives, when we're not living honestly before God, there's financial death, wrong spending priorities, greedy, lacking trust in God's care, holding it all back. We try to hold on. We try to control it ourselves. And where do we find ourselves at the end of the day? No further ahead. We have relationship death, dishonesty in our relationships. Sin destroys relationships and trust. It causes you to lose the ones you love the most. It can be a reputation death. The Bible says that sin is eventually exposed. Dishonesty and sin ruins our reputation. It can be spiritual death. When sin is left alone in our lives, it eventually brings spiritual severance from God. And we become like Samson of old, which I think are the saddest verses in Scripture. He got up like all those times before and didn't even know that the Spirit of God had left him. That is so sad. And it can be ministry death. You lose credibility in sharing your faith because no one trusts you anymore. You don't get to serve in a capacity anymore or work for God or advance His kingdom work because the sin in your life holds you back. See, sin always brings death. Dishonesty brings death. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. You know, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is not about what happens when you lie about your offering. It's about what happens when we place our emphasis on what other people see and the praise we get for them. It's about what happens when other people's perception of us becomes more important than what is really true. It's about what happens when we hold back from total surrender to God while trying to give the impression that we are not holding back at all. It's only when our financial, financial priorities align with kingdom priorities will we handle our finances and our lives in a way that declares that Jesus is the Lord of our lives.